You guys can have a seat. I'm grateful that you're here. I'm grateful that we get to spend another Friday night together, even if it's over the summer and not during the semester. Um, Tonight, I want to talk to you about expectation. Expectation. We usually like to know what to expect, right? Uh, Think about when you're ordering food off of a menu. You typically end up choosing something that you at least kind of know what it's going to taste like. Or think about, uh, it's summer, so think about the pool, right? Uh, You like to give that pool a a quick little temperature check before you uh, dive headlong in. Uh, No one likes to go into something completely blind. Uh, We'd rather have at least some sort of idea of, of what's going to happen when we do whatever it is we're thinking about doing. You see, when we know what to expect... We usually feel more comfortable, we feel more confident, and we feel more secure about the thing that we're going to do. And especially if it's something that we expect that is good. If we expect something good, well, we're, we're typically a lot more inclined to do whatever that thing is. Here's a good example. You guys know what Bruin Walk is? I'm not talking the, the route down the middle of campus. I'm talking BruinWalk.com. You've heard of BruinWalk.com. I've heard of BruinWalk.com. If you haven't, I'm about to enrich your life. Okay? BruinWalk.com is a website that gives you all sorts of insights into any class and any professor here at UCLA. Uh, You can read reviews of these classes and these professors from Bruins who have actually taken these classes and these professors before you. There's this whole rating system too, and, and you can see like the, the difficulty level of the class. You can see the workload of the class. You can see how a professor scored in his teaching clarity or his helpfulness. And on top of that, and this might be the biggest one of them all, you can see the grade distribution of all the past classes that have gone before you. You can see what percentage of previous classes got A's or B's or C's or D's or have even failed. And, uh, you know, I, I, I give God all the glory for, for bringing Erica and I together because he is sovereign. But one of the means that he used to bring Erica and I together was Bruin Walk. Because my freshman year... I took a class for one reason and one reason only. And it was because Bruin Walk said a lot of people got A's in that class. And in that class, I met Erica, and the rest is history. I tell you that story to make a point about expectation. When you expect something good, you're more inclined to do that thing. Bruin Walk showed me what to expect from this class, and that alone was enough to to get me to commit to taking that class for a whole quarter. Maybe something like that has happened to you too. Do you see how how powerful expectation can be? Do you see how when we know what to expect and when we expect something good, we are almost always more driven to do that thing? Well, our text tonight is in Luke chapter 11, and you can turn there now. Luke chapter 11, verses 5 through 13, and in these verses... Jesus tells a parable along with some explanation that teaches us what we can expect when we pray. 
what we can expect when we pray. It was well said by Matt just last week that a, a parable is truth in story form. And the main truth that Jesus wants you to know tonight from these verses is simply this. You can expect the best from God when you pray. You can always expect the best from God when you pray. And maybe that sounds a little bit trite to you. Maybe to you, that sounds like something you've heard a thousand times in Sunday school. And maybe you're not really looking forward to hearing another sermon where the takeaway is just to, to try harder, to pray more, and to be better at being a Christian. And if that's you, I just want to say that I, I understand. I have heard a lot of poor and, and unhelpful exhortations to just simply pray more, to just simply try harder and do better. And don't get me wrong, I'm behind praying more. If we're all honest, I, I think we have to admit to ourselves that we don't pray as we ought to. And so I'm 100%, 100% behind striving with, with all of our energy and all of our discipline, all of our efforts to grow in prayer. And here's the thing. Jesus is behind that too. Jesus wants you to grow in and to persevere in your prayer life. And in his perfect wisdom, he knows exactly how to help you do that. And Jesus doesn't just simply say, try harder. Jesus doesn't simply say, just man up and, and be a better Christian, stop being so unspiritual, and pray more. Instead, Jesus tells us a story, a parable. He tells us a story about what we can expect when we pray. And in doing so, he, he shepherds our hearts to pursue prayer, not just out of duty, but out of loving devotion to God. You see, knowing what to expect when you pray has the power to transform not just your prayer life, but your whole life. And that transformative power is found in these verses of Luke chapter 11. Let's read together Luke 11. We're going to start in verse 1 for some much-needed context, and we'll go all the way to 13. Luke 11, starting in verse 1. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say... Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are in bed with me. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. 
Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Our verses tonight are verses 5 through 13, but it's important before we get into that, that we are all on the same page about the word pray. What do we mean by pray? That's Jesus' concern in verses 1 through 4. Here we have what is famously called the Lord's Prayer, and it is some incredibly important context to have before we hear Jesus' encouragement to actually put that prayer into practice. You can think of verses 1 through 4 as kind of like knowing where inbounds is in a game of basketball or soccer, right? If you're playing a game of soccer, if you do all the right things to score a goal, but you do it on the wrong field and you shoot at the wrong goal, you still don't score a goal because you're not playing inbounds. And so all the blessings and all the promises relating to prayer in verses 5 through 13 presuppose that you are praying inbounds, so to speak. And so no, you can't just take Jesus' words of ask and it will be given to you and pray that God will make you rich and then go to the casino and just gamble your life away. Because that is, that's out of bounds. That is not what Jesus means by the word prayer. You see, God gets to define what prayer even is. And he gives us a, a framework and a structure for that in verses 1 through 4. And if I had to sort of summarize and break down what this structure, what this framework for prayer is, I would break it down in just two major sections. The Lord's Prayer teaches us that prayer must focus on our worship of God and then also our dependence on God. Our worship of God and our dependence on God. Look really quickly with me, just at verse 2. Jesus says, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. This is to be the priority of every prayer. It's no accident that Jesus opens the prayer with unmistakably God-centered language. You see, to, to pray that God's name would be hallowed, which is not a word we often use today, it simply means to, to pray that God's name would be treated as holy, that, that he would be set apart or, or distinguished for honor and for praise and for worship. It's kind of like when the gold medalist in the Olympics gets the highest podium out of all the other contestants. He, he's being set apart, distinguished for honor and praise. That's what it means when Jesus says, pray, hallowed be your name. And so really that prayer is, is kind of like a call to the universe to worship. It's a call, it's a prayer asking that God would, would take his own name, his own self, and, and, and exalt himself so that everybody and everything could see him for who he is and so that we can honor him for who he is. 
And, and the second part of verse 2 is, is kind of similar. He says, pray that your king, pray your kingdom come. By using the word kingdom, Jesus is, is emphasizing the, the authority and the reign of God. And so he's saying, when you say, pray your kingdom come, he's asking that, that God would make his authority and his reign manifest over everything and everyone in the universe, again, so that he would be honored for who he truly is, the king of kings. And so to pray these words is, is a prayer that expresses your desire that above all, God would be honored and glorified for who he truly is. It's unmistakable that prayer first and foremost must focus on the worship of God. Verses 3 and 4 focus on the fact that prayer should focus on our dependence on God as well. This is certainly connected to verse 2 because every time we express our dependence on God, it's also an act of worship. But look again with me just quickly at verses 3 and 4. Jesus says to pray these words, Give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. The clear tone of this section is total and utter dependence. You see, the three most basic needs of every single human being are in these two verses. You see that, right? We need to eat, we need to be forgiven of our sins, and we need to be kept faithfully walking with our God. When you break it down, that is basically the Christian life. And physical life and spiritual life both come from the hand of God alone. And so praying in this way reminds us that we are totally and utterly dependent on God for all of life. One commentator says it this way, and this is so helpful. He says, Jesus wants his disciples to consciously depend upon him for their most basic needs, physically and spiritually. You see, whether or not you know it, you depend on God for life and breath and everything. And when you pray like this, you are consciously acknowledging that God is your provider, that God is your savior, and that God is your protector. And that is worship. And so taken as a whole, the Lord's Prayer sets this foundation for us for every one of our prayers. And in all of those prayers, two things must be clear. That our prayers need to be about our worship of God and our dependence on God. Prayer is not about our success in life. It's not about our goals. It's not about our achievements or our wills. It is about worshiping and depending on God. And it is that kind of prayer that brings us to verse 5. By the time we get to verse 5, the the kind and loving shepherding heart of Jesus is just on full display. You know, something that really struck me as I was studying this passage was just how tender-hearted Jesus is here. Just think about it, right? He, He teaches his disciples how to pray, and then without skipping a beat, Jesus anticipates their struggle. You see that? He he anticipates that it's going to be hard for them. He anticipates that that they're going to feel 
too tired sometimes, or they're going to feel too busy sometimes. Jesus anticipates that, that they're going to feel often discouraged by their own weakness and, and inconsistency to pray. He, he, he anticipates that, that they might even feel ashamed to bring that, that ugly sin over and over to God and ask for forgiveness. You know those feelings, don't you? I, I know I do when I think about my own prayer life. And if that's you, I encourage you to just pause for a moment and think about the fact that Jesus understands you. Jesus understands you. And just think about the fact that Jesus was, was so filled with, with compassion and love for you and, and a desire to, to see you experience the joys of prayer that he spends the next eight verses simply encouraging you. That's what these verses are. Verses 5 through 13 are Jesus' encouragement for us to experience the joy of prayer. And it's not some cold, detached, some unhelpful call to just try harder to pray. Instead, Jesus tells us to pray by telling us what to expect when we pray. And he gives us two things. Two things to expect when we pray you hold on to these truths, I, I truly believe that you will grow to, to long for prayer more and more, and I truly believe that it'll become harder and harder not to pray. The first thing to expect when you pray is found in verses 5 through 10, and it is that you should expect a pleased answer from God. Expect a pleased answer from from God. Let's read again, starting in verse 5, and we're just going to go to verse 7 for now. And he, Jesus, said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. Here, Jesus introduces our parable, and it's a story about two friends who are neighbors. And the scene is uh, the clock striking midnight. And all of a sudden, one of these friends bangs on his neighbor's door and says, Hey, lend me some food. I got a friend staying over, and uh, I wasn't expecting him, and I don't have anything for him, so can you just, can you just make us some bread? I know it's midnight. And if you're like me when you read this story, you're kind of like, come on, man. Like, it's midnight. This dude is asleep with his family, and you're asking for some bread. What are you doing? And then in, verses, in verse 7, if you read that friend's response, you might kind of be like, yes and amen. Like, like you tell him, right? Like, that, that's a crazy request. It's ridiculous. And if you feel that way, it's because you live here in 2023, UCLA Westwood. Because this is a very different time and place, and we need some historical context to understand what's going on. Because in their time and place, hospitality was a huge, huge deal. Uh, one commentator calls hospitality 
in this time and place a sacred duty. You see, if you had a visitor come to your house and you couldn't host him properly, you would not only be, be shamed for not hosting him properly, you would, you, would be, you would also be bringing shame on your entire community. If you had somebody visiting from out of town and you could not host him properly, your entire village would be shamed as this awful place that no one would want to go to. It's like, it's like a dishonor on you and your cow situation. Like, like everything about this is bad news, that this guy cannot host this visitor. Uh, one, one commentator, in helping us think about what that would be like today, uh, parallels it to, to a situation involving childbirth. And, and if you've been with us for, for a little while, you, you know that very recently, the Ings brought in beautiful little Izzy Ing to the world. And so, and, oh, you would also know, actually, probably, that the Ings live just around the corner from the lands, right? Okay, so that's the, that's the situation we're working with here, okay? Let's, let's rewind the clock back a little bit and, and imagine it is 1159, the night before beautiful little Izzy Ing was born. And then the clock strikes midnight. And it's time for Izzy to enter the world. And so Matt and Kimmy run to their car, only to find out that their car won't start. And then they try their other car, and that car won't start. And so Matt runs over to Ed's house, and he bangs on the door at midnight, and he says, guys, it's time for Izzy to enter the world, but my car won't start. I need to borrow yours. Well, imagine if Ed said, without opening the door, sorry man, I actually left my car keys in Elliot's room, and he's asleep, and I'm scared if I go in there, I'm going to wake him up, and so I don't want to do that, but, you know, we're praying for Kimmy, good luck. Like, that is ridiculous, right? Like, that would never happen, and if it did, we would think the worst of Ed, and it would seriously, never happen. Well, that's, what Je- that's the kind of story that Jesus is telling in Luke 11, beginning in verse 5. He opens the parable with this rhetorical question, which of you has a friend who would do something like this? It has the force of, of us saying, like, can you imagine if this were to happen? Implied answer, of course not. That is ridiculous. A friend would never do something like that. And so for the friend in this parable to say, no, sorry, we went to bed, that's him being a really, really bad friend. And that's clarified in verse 8. Read that with me. Jesus says, I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. Jesus says, this guy doesn't end up giving the food he, he says this guy does end up giving the food, but not because he is his friend. In other words, he doesn't act out of love for his friend. He doesn't act because he wants to help his friend. He acts because he's annoyed by his friend. Because his friend, Jesus says, is being impudent. Let me ask you a question. So who's the good guy in this story? Well, if you're starting to think it's the guy asking for bread... That's not quite right either. And it's because Jesus calls him that word 
impudent. That is not a nice word in English or in Greek. Some, some translations render this word persistent. You might even see uh, a footnote that says that in your Bible. And that's usually because they think that Jesus is saying to, to be like this friend. Be like this friend and be persistent in asking for things from God. And to be fair, being persistent in prayer is a good thing, but that is not what's being taught here. Impudent is not a nice or commendable attribute. The Greek word in all of its uses, both in the Bible and in ancient Greece, which is something like 250 times total, is always used negatively. Never something to be commended. It's always got ideas of like rudeness and and disregard for social norms, improper conduct, audacity. And so by the end of this parable, we are left with no heroes. No heroes at all. No one to imitate. One guy is a loveless, grumpy neighbor, and the other is an impudent, audacious neighbor. And so the point of this parable is not to be like one of these characters. Jesus just gave us a template for prayer, and it definitely, definitely wasn't impudent or disrespectful. You see, these characters are absolutely nothing to imitate. And yet, verse 8, that loveless neighbor still answered the door. And that rude neighbor still received what he needed. So what's the point? The point of this parable is that if a loveless neighbor opens the door for an impudent neighbor and gives him what he needs, won't a loving God open the door for his son or daughter and give them what they need? If a bad friend won't turn away an annoying neighbor, but gives him what he needs, how unimaginable would it be that a loving father would ever turn away his son or his daughter? That is the promise that this parable illustrates, and Jesus explains it in verses 9 through 10. Jesus says, And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Jesus' parable is his brilliant way of illustrating and proving the truth of verses 9 through 10. That if you're a, a Christian here today, you can ask God that hard question over and over and over again. You can seek answers from God over and over, and you can knock on heaven's door over and over and over again, and the glorious truth is this, you will not be turned away. Again, this is not license to to make selfish demands from God. This is not so that your name would be honored, so that your kingdom would come. That's not what prayer is according to Jesus, remember? But when your heart learns to pray like Jesus taught in verses 1 through 4, desiring that God would be worshipped and desiring that, that you would express your dependence on God for everything, this parable is an amazing promise for you. Because when you pray, you can be 100% sure 
that God will never get tired of providing for you. You can be 100% sure that God will never give up in glorifying his name through you. He will finish the work that he began. And so if you have doubts about your faith, you can take those to God. He's not going to feel threatened. He is the perfect counselor. If you have trials in your life, you can bring those to God. God is a perfect comforter. And friend, if you have sins in your life, you can bring those to God too because his mercy is always more. GOC, if you are sad or tired or weary, you can bring it all to God and trust that he will not only answer you, but that he will be pleased to answer you. You don't have to feel like a burden to God. You don't have to feel like you're bothering God. You can expect that when you pray, that door will open always, and you will be greeted by the kind and the smiling face of your heavenly Father, who is pleased to answer you, who is pleased to provide for you, and who is pleased to glorify himself through you. If you struggle to pray, I encourage you to spend some time thinking about how your prayers will be received. Sometimes, you know, we're, we're afraid to ask questions in class, right? Because we're afraid that we might look dumb. We might interrupt the class. Sometimes we're, we're afraid to, to ask for help because we don't want to seem incompetent or needy. We're afraid to admit our faults because we're afraid of being mocked or shamed. Well, when it comes to God, that is a lie. If you know that you can expect God to be pleased in answering the door and giving everything you need, how much more does that ignite your desire to pray? One pastor says it this way, God really is your friend at every midnight. Expect a pleased answer from God when you pray. And Jesus' encouragement doesn't stop there. He gives another scenario in verses 11 through 13 that gives us just another great thing to expect when we pray. Here, Jesus tells us that when we pray, we can also expect God's perfect answer. We can expect God's perfect answer. Read with me verses 11 through 13. Jesus says, What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will, your, will, will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Uh, Jesus opens this scenario with the, the same kind of rhetorical device that we saw in verse 5 when he says, uh, what, what father among you? It's like he's saying, can you imagine if one of you fathers did this? And again, the implication is, of course not. And there's a lot less cultural barriers for us to navigate on this one, right? You get the picture. 
situation is a son going up to his dad and saying, Dad, I'm hungry and I'm in the mood for some fish. And the dad says, sure, son, no problem. Here's a snake. And it's just absurd. And then verse 12, he says, Dad, I'm hungry. I'm in the mood for an egg. And the dad says, sure, son, have a scorpion. Like, like this is just so absurd that all the fathers there when Jesus was teaching this were probably thinking, like, Jesus, how do you even come up with this stuff? Like, this is not even in the realm of possibility. For a father to neglect to provide is bad enough, but for a father to, to mock the hunger of his children and then to put them in, in danger with a snake or a scorpion is crazy. And Jesus says, I know, that is crazy, and that's my point. Jesus says, look, all of you here are sinners. All of you fathers here, none of you are perfect. Far from it. And yet, for, for all of your sin, and, and for all of your selfishness, for all of your imperfection, you can still get it right and give good gifts to your children. You still know not to put them in harm's way. You still know to provide for them. And so unless you think you're a better father than God, then trust God when he says he will give you what is best. Look how Jesus says it in verse 13. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Jesus is emphasizing the total reliability, the total trustworthiness of God, not just to answer your prayer, not just to be pleased to answer your prayer, but to answer your prayer perfectly with what is best. And that's why Jesus says, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? You see, you might have expected Jesus to say something like, how much more will the Heavenly Father give good gifts to those who ask Him? And that would be a true statement too, but what Jesus is doing here is saying that if God would give you the supreme gift, the Holy Spirit, well, then no gift is off limits. You see, Jesus is raising the bar. He's upping the ante. He is going all in on what you can expect when you pray. He says your expectations of prayer need to be higher. You need to expect greater things from God than you could possibly imagine. Our own pastor, John MacArthur, says it this way. To those who ask for a gift, he gives the giver. To those who ask for an effect, he gives the cause. To those seeking comfort, he gives the comforter. To those seeking power, he gives the source of power. To those seeking help, he gives the helper. To those seeking truth, he gives the spirit of truth. And to those seeking love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, he gives the producer of all those things. If you could with full confidence expect all that from God when you pray, 
what would your prayer life look like? You know, I think sometimes we worry that God is looking for some loophole in our prayers. Maybe we think that God is, is going to be tricky and, and devious in answering our prayers so that we should be careful what we wish for. That is as unthinkable as a father giving his son a scorpion when he asked for an egg. You see, our God is kind-hearted. He is generous. He is, he is gentle and he is near to the brokenhearted. And he is willing and pleased to answer your prayers even at midnight. And every single answer to every single one of your prayers is perfect and perfectly good. And there is no better evidence of that than him giving you the Holy Spirit. Because the only way that God could give the Holy Spirit to a sinner is if that sinner were forgiven of his sins. And the only way for a sinner to be forgiven of his sins by a just and a righteous God is if that sinner's debt was paid. And the good news, the gospel is that Jesus paid it all. Friend, do you need evidence that God will give you good and perfect gifts when you ask? If you do, look no further than the cross of Jesus Christ. There is no greater gift than to have your sins forgiven by a holy God. And if you ask for that gift, God will say, it is yours. Because at the cross, the perfect Son of God received the punishment that you deserved for your sin. And his resurrection three days later proved that if you turn from your sin and trust in him, you can receive the good and perfect gift of eternal life and forgiveness. Instead of, of punishment, you will receive from God the gift of the Holy Spirit. And God says he will give that to all who ask. And that is only possible through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So how can we be sure that these promises in Luke 11 are true? How can we be sure that God will actually be pleased to hear our prayers and how can we be sure that God will actually give us the best answer every time? We can be sure because the one who is promising is the one who makes it possible. The one who is making the promise is Jesus, the one by whom the promise comes. You see, Jesus promises these things and he knows that they are absolutely true because he makes it possible by his own blood turn in your bibles to hebrews chapter 4 i want to show you this sweet verse and i hope it can be a help to you for years to come hebrews chapter 4 look at verse 15 with me the author of hebrews writes in hebrews 4:15 for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, 
but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus promises that you can pray confidently expecting God to open the door with a loving smile and a perfect answer. And that promise is trustworthy because Jesus himself gained us that privilege on the cross. Jesus guaranteed that your prayers would be heard when he shed his blood on that cross. Romans 8.22, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? What can you expect when you pray? You can expect a God who is pleased to listen and a God who will give a perfect and perfectly good answer. Let me close with this verse from a beloved hymn. What a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Listen to the words of Jesus and eagerly go to your God, carrying everything to him in prayer. Let's pray. Father, having heard the words of your Son, and his instruction and encouragement for us to pray, it makes our hearts overflow with joy as we partake of that gift even now. That we can commune with you, a holy and a just and a righteous God, is nothing short of a miracle. And we know that the cost was the death of your son, Jesus. And so God, help us to Look to the cross in our time of need. For some, if that's the need of salvation, I pray that you would open their eyes to see and ears to hear this good news that Jesus died to pay the price for their sin. And for others of us who can call you Father, I pray that as we think about the, the cost that was paid to give us this blessing of prayer, and as we think about the, the benefits we can expect from you, a, a gracious and a loving God, I pray that you would ignite the desire of our hearts to pray and pray and pray. Father, thank you for the gift of prayer, the gift of communing with you. Help us to honor you and worship you through it every day of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray.